Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello. Today I'm speaking with Jen Carnop. Jen is a friend and colleague of mine, and like me, she is working towards her PhD in education policy. The focus of our conversation today will be on pedagogical models and curriculum that differ from status quo practices in schools, which tend to focus on standardized assessments through letter grades and tests. But first, I just want to note that there was some technical difficulties um, during this interview. I do my interviews via Zoom, and we had a little bit of internet connectivity issues. I tried to remedy that the best that I could, but you might still notice it in some spots. Also, I am learning how to podcast, and I'm learning how to use my microphone, um, so the sound quality is just slightly off, but not enough to distract you from the conversation. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Jen. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, so basically to get started, I would just like for you to give a brief history of your experience with education up to this point. Sure. Uh, let's see. I guess I've been in the world of education for about 25 years now. I started out actually in non-traditional settings working at a children's museum in Boston, working with the school programming there. And I went on to do some work with early childhood educators. And uh, then I became a classroom teacher at a charter school at the kindergarten level. And that sort of expanded into traditional uh, classroom teaching at the elementary school level. Uh, I also gained my, my um, master's in special education and worked as a special educator in a traditional public school. And then I started a charter school. Um, and that was a, sort of a Montessori project-based learning elementary school. And I served as uh, on the founding board, and then I also became the first uh, principal of that school. And that really is what inspired my interest in education policy and pursuing the PhD in that area. Okay, awesome. <clears throat> so we'll get back to how that led you here and inspired what you're working on now. Um, but first, um, so the primary questions that this podcast aims to answer, which um, you know, just depends on the guests we have on whether or not we get to these questions. But the three are, what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? So I want to start by asking, how do you define education? I think that's an awesome question. Uh, I was thinking about this a lot, actually, when I heard about your podcast starting up and understanding that that was going to be one of the topics. And I really think very broadly about what education is. I really think of it as the process of growing and developing skills and understandings that will make somebody successful in life. Okay. Sort of awesome. a short, succinct definition, yeah, yeah. but I, I think great. of it very broadly. <laughs> All right, that's great. Um, okay, so thinking in this broad context, have you always thought that way or has your thinking about education evolved? changed over time? I think it's definitely evolved. Um, I really think of my, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then when I was in uh, 
an undergrad studying education, I actually hated all of my teaching courses <laughs> and uh, decided that, uh, that college was really gonna, for me, was gonna be an opportunity to just expand my knowledge and understandings of the world and less focused on career development. Um, uh, but my first job out of college was at the Children's Museum in Boston. And uh, that is really where I developed a whole new understanding of what, um, what education is or could be. Yeah, so at the Children's Museum in Boston, uh, I was in charge of school programs or working with school programs when we had a traveling exhibit of, uh, that was on Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. And that really opened my eyes to a whole different way of understanding what learning is and what learning could be and how people learn. And it was just amazing to me, just in the children's music general, but with this exhibit specifically, uh, how engaged kids were that, you know, we had a lot of kids from come, coming from inner city school groups, um, bilingual uh, school groups, and really the, the level of engagement that they had in the exhibits when, um, you know, teachers would constantly comment about how they'd never seen the kids so focused or so interested. Um, and so that was really eye-opening to me, all the different, different ways that you can involve um, or get kids interested in learning through different channels um, and different approaches to the subject matter. Okay, cool. Yeah, can you provide some examples of what you were doing in the museum that really piqued, you know, allowed children to be so interested in topics? Sure. Um, I know one of the exhibits that I worked a lot with was a Latino exhibit in, in the Children's Museum. It was a, a sort of understanding the uh, Latino community. This was back in the early 90s. <laughs> um, and so the whole idea of a Latino community was really just just starting to become a prominent thought in mm -hmm. inner city areas. Um, and so this exhibit was developed and uh, and I watching the kids just it had uh, all kinds of maps about you know the different countries uh, where people speak Spanish it had all kinds of questions like what is Latino you know and and pointing out the the Brazil they don't speak Spanish are they Latino um, you know a, a lot of the different misconceptions had uh, photos and images of different um, celebrations of the done in Latin America and a lot of music that the kids could listen to and and just all the various entry points then that we had for visual kids who were really interested in the maps and pressing the buttons about where do people speak Spanish and seeing that light up and having those conversations then from that map or the kids who were really engaged in the music and really comparing the music in different cultures and then asking questions around that. Hmm. Um, so I thought that that was uh, and then even the, the images of the celebrations and the way kids would sit and really look at those dioramas or those images and, and um, start to point out what was similar to in their house or what was different from their house. And uh, so, the, yeah, those are some of the examples, if, if that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so then in your, because you had this early experience in your career of this different way of learning than what typically happens in school, then how did that transition into you as someone who works in a school as a teacher and as an administrator? 
Sure. So I got my first teaching job after that museum experience. And so that was very much in the forefront of my mind is, you know, I, I was working in an inner city bilingual charter school as a kindergarten teacher. So I was these kids first formal teaching experience for you know, a lot of the kids that I worked with. And, um, and so I really thought hard about you know, a lot of them. It was very difficult to get bilingual mater materials back then. Um, and so I thought hard about how do I engage these kids whose English is not their first language. A lot of the materials that my classroom came prepared with were all in English. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and how do I engage them when they're not used to sitting in one spot and mm -hmm. taking in information? Um, and so I thought really hard about that. And that's actually how I got turned on to um, Montessori, Maria Montessori, and her use of manipulative materials and having kids discover ideas and concepts by exploring and touching and really setting up a classroom as a prepared environment that's meant for exploration and uncovering new understandings just from the materials that you have out there and the questions you ask children as they engage with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then how did that translate into you, or if it did, um, you can answer that, translate into you deciding to start your own school? That, yeah, it's definitely related, but the real uh, push for me to start my own school, well, I, I've always had this thought that school can be better than it is, you know, mm -hmm. that there are a lot of kids that were not serving particularly well with the traditional approach to instruction. Um, but what really lit the fire under me is that I ended up, you know, became, became a parent and uh, one of my own children was one of these kids who was not being served well in the traditional public environment. And that was a surprise to me because I had always been a good student. My husband had always been a good student. Um, we were really taken aback by the challenges that she had in being in a traditional school environment. Um, and we were also in a very rural community. There weren't a lot of other options for schooling besides the traditional public schools. Um, and so there were a lot of other parents that were in our situation of having children just weren't the right fit for the traditional public school. Um, and it also coincided with New Hampshire, which is where we lived at the time. Um, revamping their charter school laws and getting a new push. They had put a moratorium on charters for about 10 years prior to that, maybe less than that. Um, and so they had reopened the idea of charter schools and were really encouraging communities to be thinking about how they might want to approach schooling. And it just, it happened to coincide with when we were looking at other options or how we could support our daughter in, um, in schooling. And so that really is what, what started the charter school. A, different way to approach schooling that would help those kids who were falling through the cracks in the traditional environment. Well, yeah, I'm surprised to hear that they had a moratorium on charter schools in the live free or die state. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's an interesting side note. Um, yeah, so once, yeah, I don't know much about the history about that, why, why the moratorium came into being or, or, or what, but I know that they did um, get a very nice federal grant, which helped inspire lifting the moratorium. I see. I see. Yeah. So when I, um, I used to do advocacy around after school programming. And so I was connected. Um, I was a part of a statewide network. So I was connected to a lot of statewide networks across the U.S. And one of them was New Hampshire. And they were doing um, competency-based learning seemed to be a new and thriving model in New Hampshire. Did you um, get that sense as well? Yeah, it's very interesting, and I'm still a little bit puzzled by it. Not, uh, 
New Hampshire, de the, the Department of Education there definitely had a, a whole slogan, follow the child, which is interesting because it's also the Montessori slogan. Um, and so that really caught my eye. And this whole idea of really pushing competency-based education in New Hampshire. But um, if I had been involved in the charter school movement, I don't know that I would have known about it. As an educator in the traditional schools, it wasn't anything I ever heard about. Um, and so I'm not really sure, well, I, I see visually the commitment of the State Department of Education in New Hampshire to the idea of that option for competency-based learning. I haven't seen it, any effort to, to grow it beyond the handful of pilot schools that got involved in the beginning. Okay, and it's just like a side. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's just kind of a side note for our listeners. Can you give like a brief overview of what is competency-based learning? Sure. Uh, Competency-based learning is the idea that rather than having a fixed time frame, you know, if you think about schooling, we start the academic year in August or September, depending on where you live, and we end it in May or June, depending on where you live. And in that time period, kids are supposed to learn a fixed amount of material. They're supposed to learn what's appropriate for their particular grade. Um, Competency-based learning changes that a little bit. So um, with the traditional model, if you, the material is laid out for you for that year, if you're a fast learner, maybe you'll go through it quickly and you're just sort of bored and sitting there waiting for the year to end or for the next unit to start. If you're a slow learner, you're constantly playing catch up. You never quite have a chance to uh, really solidify your skills before it's time to move on to the next unit or you get moved up into the next grade and maybe you get you know a d or a c but you're able to be promoted to the next mm -hmm. grade competency-based learning changes that a little bit it puts as the fixed concept what you're going to learn and what becomes variable is the time frame that you're going to learn it so uh, there are particular skills that you need to understand in early math and so you, you uh, the idea of competency-based learning is that you take the time you need to learn that skill and once you've mastered that skill you move on to the next one and if you can do that very quickly then great and you move on to the next one if it takes you a while then you take that time that you need until you've mastered and then you move on to the next skill all right great thank you yeah and one thing that I um, know since I've known you that you worked on was <clears throat> kind of your little study or not little but um, you know your interview with one school administrator and it was she was basically undoing her competency-based learning model so can you share a little bit about what you learned from that you know maybe why she started going the competency-based route in the first place and then what caused it to be undone yeah that was really interesting i had actually reached out to this particular school leader because i had heard from several people about the great things that she was doing with competency-based learning in her elementary school um, and when I contacted her to see if I could interview her, she said, well, I'm happy to help you with your study, but you might be a little disappointed because I'm in the process of rolling all of that back. Um, so the so focus of my study shifted a little bit and I, it sort of turned into understanding the rollback process and as a school leader, how do you go about, because she had been a real champion. She was, she was not the one that started the competency-based model in the school, but she took the position specifically because she loved competency-based learning and she wanted to be the one to help bring it to, to fruition in that school. It had been started by somebody else. 
Um, and so I was very surprised to hear her process of, of rolling back and what all that meant. I mean, she had put a lot of effort into convincing parents about how great this was. She had worked very closely with uh, district officials to make sure that the school was going to be supported on the district level for the changes that they need to make. She had done a lot of work with the staff and helping the staff to understand competency-based learning. Um, and it really came down to uh, some changes in the state accountability practices. Um, the the uh, uh, standards had changed a little bit in Indiana. One thing about Indiana is that the standards don't stay the same for very long, from what I understand. <laughs> I haven't been in very Indiana for very long, but the people I speak with uh, have mentioned that the standards have shifted many times um, in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and so part of it was this, uh, the standards changing, becoming, I think it was a little bit more rigorous uh, than they had been in the past. And, um, and also the district was allocating resources a little bit differently. So they were reducing the number of classroom assistants that uh, the elementary school was going to receive. And so, the, this principal felt that with the higher accountability pressures um, and the fewer staff to help support having a lot of different kids working at a lot of different levels, um, that the competency-based model was not going to be successful. And so she was in the process of rolling it back. Yes. And did you um, experience anything like that when you were working in New Hampshire? Um, you know, I, I'm only familiar with, you know, like Indiana, Illinois. So I don't know how much these things impact charter schools in mm -hmm. different states. So did you see this as a similar problem um, in New Hampshire? I did. Yeah, it was. I, I found it to be a huge challenge. You know, the charter school movement is really there to provide an alternative way of doing schooling. Um, but the measures that you're held accountable for and your measures of success are very narrow. It's the state standardized testing, which is per grade level. And so any idea of shifting to a competency-based model really strains your ability to be successful in these standardized tests. Um, you've got some kids who are maybe in second grade but working in English language arts at a third grade level and math at, you know, an upper first grade level. And so when they take the standardized test, the material that's targeted at second grade is old news for them in language arts and they may not have had the refresher on, on all of the nuances of the specific skills that are being tested. Whereas in math, they haven't quite been exposed to that material yet because they hadn't mastered the concepts below. So whether you've got a child who's working above grade level or below grade level, they're really at a deficit when it comes to a standardized test that's targeted for that specific grade level. Um, and so that, that is a challenge, you know, for, for any school that's trying to, to put up a new model. Um, really what, what measures, what gets measured is what counts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if all that you're doing that's different, whether it's developing social and emotional skills or leadership skills or 21st century skills, mm -hmm. if that's not being measured on the test, then it really doesn't count for much in, um, as far as uh, whether your school is considered successful or not from the eyes, um, from outside eyes. You know, so, so we had families that were very, very happy, going back to my charter school experience, very happy with their children's experience in the school. Um, but the standardized test scores, particularly in our first few years, were 
we're not stellar by any stretch. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> particularly considering we were taking in kids who were struggling in the traditional schools in the first place. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is the whole point. Um, so right. did you find a way to be able to balance then what is the um, expectations as far as the state is concerned and then how you structured your school? You said the first few yeah. years you struggled, but maybe you found a balance? Well, you know, I think that part of it is educating families and the general public about what is important to us as a school. Um, and what we want to focus on. Um, but then, you know, we did have to do some compromises. So we did have to, especially uh, when, when I was principal there, the state shifted from um, one form of assessment, which was paper, it was called the kneecap, and it was a, a paper-based test to the Smarter Balanced online test, which was more, kneecap was a New England um, testing protocol, whereas the Smarter Balanced was a national. Um, and we had to get accustomed to working with computers. Again, we were a Montessori project-based charter school at the elementary level, and so our kids were not familiar with computers. We didn't have computers in every uh, grade level. And so there was a big learning curve for us in teaching the kids how to take the test. And so that, you know, that was, a, that was tough, I think, for, for teachers and, and for me as the school leader in having to devote really valuable instructional time mm -hmm to teaching kids how to take this assessment, which we didn't value, um, you know, in, in our school model. Uh, but we did learn that, you know, if we want to have any sort of success at all in the test and not set, you know, in Montessori, there's a big push to, to make sure that you're, you're setting up a child for success and not setting them up for failure. And so we really felt that for the good of our students, we had to set them up for success more intentionally with standardized testing than what we had originally done. So it was a compromise on our part for sure. Yeah, I mean, as you know, but this is a very fascinating thing to me about the whole charter school movement is they basically developed an alternative model that's exactly like the traditional public school. You exactly. know, as far as like the incentive exactly. structure, you have to, right. the incentive is to prepare kids for tests. Well, if that's the incentive, what are they going to do? Prepare kids for tests. Um, so, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think you saw a lot of uh, innovative ideas really get funneled into a more traditional approach over time when, when it became clear that if you weren't being successful on these tests that your school was in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, early on in our conversation, you talked about how this experience of you running the school kind of led you to uh, get your PhD in education policy. So why a policy focus? Uh, what, what were your hopes um, that you would get out of this program that you're in now? That we're in. Yeah, I think I was very um, naive and optimistic when I uh, worked with the group to start the charter school that, uh, you know, as a person with a, or a group of people with a different idea about how things could be, we could make a difference and make things happen. Um, and I think, you know, I think we did make a difference on a very small scale. I think we really had a very positive impact on the lives of uh, a group of children who, <laughs> who went through our school. But, you know, the, uh, I found that there was a lot of tension that just came from the whole way that policy was discussed and, um, and promoted and explained in the various educational channels. So the school boards associations and the teachers unions um, 
really setting up a dichotomy of a us versus them with charter schools, which I felt was really uh, disappointing and a missed opportunity. I was really hoping that there would be a good relationship between our school and the area public schools that we could learn from them and they could learn from us, especially since I had worked in those schools and had good relationships with the leadership there. Um, I was very surprised at how uh, how difficult it was to engage in productive conversations across um, across those barriers, um, and and I saw it as as a real policy issue that you know one person can't do this, one group of well-intentioned people can't do this. Uh, the policy is set up to create an us versus them environment in the way that funding is allocated and uh, other resources are allocated, and in the way that accountability is done. It really um, was not a productive space for creating a new way of, of doing schooling. Um, and so I wanted to have an impact at more of a policy level that could address some of those bigger challenges um, that those trying to do the implementation work were struggling with. Okay, great. <clears throat> and so what are you up to these days? Looking at schools who are uh, trying to implement new ways of teaching and learning and how educators come to learn about um, how to go about changing their instructional practices. I'm interested in uh, social relationships, uh, social networks within schools and school leaders, and I see those as valuable on two fronts. Um, one, I think that they can facilitate very large scale change, and I think it's really only through large scale implementation of different ideas that we'll be able to really push policy ideas forward. Um, it seems that when you start with policy and try to push that down into practice, it's maybe not always as successful as if you can get a groundswell of implementers that really want to change policy. Um, so that's sort of the way I'm, I'm thinking about uh, change for the future in education. And um, that's that's really what I'm focusing my studies on right now. All right, cool. So kind of the backward mapping idea. Yeah. You know, which is in this country uh, in particular, maybe elsewhere, but that was the idea of states. You know, you have localities and then you have states. So these ideas can kind of bubble up from the local and then become mm -hmm. broader. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting time. You know, when I started the charter school, we were in the midst of uh, No Child Left Behind and this uh, really strong national um, federal role of mm -hmm. education, which we really hadn't seen before in the United States. Um, and I think, you know, when it first came out, people kind of poo-pooed it and thought, well, there's no way we are such a confederation in education the national government can say all they want to say about standards and accountability but what good is that going to do um but you know they tied that to funding and that, <laughs> that quickly stick. changed the uh, <laughs> that quickly changed the picture of what was going on um and so now we're in a time that i think this government is is becoming um more having a greater role in what happens in education. You know, it's, I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was the local government that was really important. Then No Child Left Behind came and the federal government started to really rise in importance in setting educational policy. And now I think we're in a new era where the states are starting to um, take a greater role in that. Um, 
And so, yeah, the hope is then if we can see some large scale changes happening at the local level that's informing state policymakers, that, um, that maybe we can really push the needle in, in getting people to think differently about how schooling can be. Yeah, yeah, I hope you're right. Yeah, I've kind of developed a, um, I used to have a sense that it's, it was okay in some ways for the federal government to be involved, but as time has gone on, I do not really take that position anymore. Um, it seems to be a hindrance, and I think for anyone who's been kind of anti-standardized testing in the way that it's been rolled out since No Child Left Behind. I think should also yeah. kind of go in that <laughs> with that position. Um, Absolutely. I think there has been some value in the federal government in terms of equity. I think it's really done a lot. Um, if you think about um, uh, the American with Disabilities Act and the idea mm -hmm. and special education, um, I think the federal government has played a very important role in making sure that all children, no matter what their ability, Mm -hmm. receive some sort of a effective education. I mean, we can argue how effective it mm -hmm. really is, but they do have some protections now which weren't there before. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, as much as I am a critic of Child Left Behind, the whole idea of having the, the testing broken down by subgroups, I think it's really highlighted some of the inequities that were happening in our educational system, which would not have come to the surface if we didn't have that sort of federal testing scheme. So yeah. for as much as I really hate it, um, I, I have to acknowledge that some of it has come of it in understanding the real serious disparities in uh, the schooling of uh, black in, within black and brown communities versus the suburban white communities. Mm -hmm. But do you think, so you mentioned with the federal government, you know, kind of states have in some ways taken back control, um, mm -hmm. mainly through the Every Student Succeeds Act. I think that kind of pushed it down a little bit more back to the states than it had been. Do you think that trend will continue? I think so. Um, you know, I would love to see a little bit more local control, but with local control comes the greater possibility for inequity. And so I think people now recognize very broad scale that our schooling system is highly inequitable. And so I think that the states will continue to play an important role just to make sure that those um, inequities are, are reduced as uh, and, and schooling becomes a little bit more of a level playing field across the board. Um, yeah, so I think that that trend will continue. Um, so kind of going back to this concept of education, you know, that learning happens in school and that learning is measured by grades and test scores. And, you know, that is the traditional model. That is the most prevalent model. And a lot of times people have a hard time, including parents, even if they know that the system is not um, doing well by their child or doing right by their child, they still can't see another way. You know, this is how I understand if my kid is learning. Um, so anyway, with that idea of education tied to schooling, do you think um, that will ever change? So a lot of parents struggled in schools, and I, and I think that they, you know, a lot of parents wish school had been different when they were kids, but they don't, they don't have another alternative model to go by. Um, and I think that even when you do present an alternative model, like in the case of the charter school that I worked with, um, 
it takes a lot of effort and commitment on the part of parents to understand that model. Mm -hmm. And everybody's busy. Um, everybody has a million other things going on and people just want to know that their child is well taken care of and learning. And they don't wanna have to think too hard about how that's happening. Um, and so that I think is a huge barrier, you know, even though in, in my experience, when people elected to come to our school, they knew it was a different way of doing things, but it was still scary. It was unknown. It was untested. And, um, and people, even though they knew it was a school that didn't give grades, were very uncomfortable with not having a report card with grades. Um, so there was a lot of parent education that had to go into easing people's minds, easing their understandings, helping them understand how we are measuring their child's success so that they were, would be better able to measure their child's success and, and feel good that they had made the right decision. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier to just continue the status quo. Um, and so especially when you don't know a whole lot about education and teaching and learning, mm -hmm. um, those markers of success that you grow up with are are you know to carry yourself forward and your family forward and so yeah that's that is a huge challenge i think one of the biggest barriers to to um changing the way we do things is just that level of parent discomfort that if this isn't the this isn't the way i learned how to do it then i don't know if this is the right way how do i know mm -hmm. yeah and i imagine also as you know the parent thinks about the trajectory of their child like getting into college well getting into college you have to be able to show a grade point average or you know that's the mindset even if yeah, that exactly. is changing at a lot of the universities yeah. that's still the mindset is that you have to have a grade point average you have to do well on this test and so they need to do well on tests that come before that um, yeah so there seems to be a lot that kind of goes into that concern and Absolutely. you know they're trusting someone to take care of their child all day long and so there's just like a hyper awareness of what everyone yeah. else is you know is experiencing is that what i'm experiencing and is that the right exactly. thing exactly exactly yeah. yeah yeah there's a level of um when you mentioned you know you're trusting your child with with the school that you you put them in and and there is a level of emotional investment um that goes along with that that's the talking about the concept of education. And so just based on your experience, um, your practical experience working in schools, the research that you've been doing, and also your knowledge as a parent, which you had talked about in determining, you know, what kind of model uh, you wanted to use to start your school. So what is your vision for education? Something that you think is like practically going to happen or just kind of a broader, more abstract vision? I'm sure. Boy, I have, I have the dream vision. Actually, um, my father is also a, a professor of education. He's in instructional systems technology. And so he and I have collaborated on a couple of books, actually, on reinventing education and a new vision for education. Um, we had one that just came out called Vision and Action. It's uh, put out by Marzano Research. And, um, and so there we really detail a, a concrete vision and what, what districts can do to move towards uh, more of a proficiency, personalized, competency-based learning approach to education. And there are a lot of schools that are doing that, a lot of districts um, doing that out there. Uh, Lindsay Unified School District is one great example. Um, 
And, uh, and so I think that that is an ideal vision. I, I think it's really challenging though, you know, I think that um, if you want to go towards competency-based learning and more of a personalized um, approach to instruction where you're really encouraging each child to become their best self as an individual, um, that, that requires a lot of changes in the way that we do things from how our classrooms are structured and how our teachers are trained and um, how uh, student progress is reported and how content is delivered. Um, and so there are a lot of moving parts to that system to make sort of my vision of the ideal world um, of schooling come to fruition. Um, I think on a, a smaller scale, I think as much as, as uh, I do think that educators right now are recognizing that kids learn in different ways mm -hmm. and that you need to really connect um, real life experiences and um, make learning meaningful. I think the challenge is that educators don't always know how to do that because they haven't really been trained in thinking about teaching in that way. So there's a lot of learning on the fly. Um, but, you know, people are trying. And I think that the more people can connect with others who are trying and figuring out, um, you know, what works in their classroom with their kids in their setting and, and working with one another to make tweaks and changes to make it work in other settings. Um, so going back to the whole idea of social networking and connecting mm -hmm. with other educators who share your beliefs and values. Um, I think from a district level, I, you know, if, if we wanted to see some real intense change, it would have to start at that district level because I think it's really difficult for a school principal to change their school um, and try to exist within a district that works differently. Um, there's always that pressure to, uh, to go back to that standardized, this is how we work mm -hmm. in this district approach. Um, so I think that school level changes can be really, really challenging. Um, classroom changes are a little bit easier and mm -hmm. district changes are really a great way to go. Or if we could get it at the state level and really get some, um, some investment, you know, in our teacher preparation programs for teaching things differently. Um, and, uh, and a lot of uh, intentional efforts to connect educators who are trying to do things differently across an entire state. I think that that could really um, do a lot for bringing this forward. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I would also, you know, I'm aligned with you, as you know, and that thinking that, you know, the more personalized learning and competency based and moving in that direction. But some of the people who argue against that, their argument is the collective, you know, you're focusing on the individual rather than the collective or society. Um, and, and I kind of like, shrug and scoff <laughs> at that argument because strong individuals make for a strong society in my mind but kind of what would what would your response be to people who you know would rather us focus on creating you know using schools to create a collective idea of society yeah no i think that that's really important and i don't think it's an either or you know in fact i think our schools today are doing a not a very good job of creating a sense of a collective. I mean, you have everybody learning um, the same thing at the same time in, in the same amount of time, um, which leads to haves and have-nots, right? It, it automatically starts separating people. Um, so while you might have a content delivery that's the same, it's all, one, it separates 
just in the way that it's delivered. And, and two, it's, um, it's isolated skills that you're teaching. I think if you are thinking about moving to a more personalized competency-based learning um, that you and I are talking about, you really, that's not isolated skills. It, it can only be done if it's embedded in the context of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's creating those project-based learning experiences, encouraging kids to go out there and see, really see their communities and see all the parts and pieces of their communities and how they relate to one another and what's good and strong about their community where they live and what could be addressed or changed or improved and encouraging them to be those change leaders with a real community focus. Um, so I think that there's an opportunity to great to create a better sense of the collective if you're valuing individuals for what they bring to the table um, and really looking at the community that you have and the community that you would like to have and taking steps towards bridging those two concepts. Yeah, and it kind of brings in the idea of like the symbiotic, you know, relationships, like I'm good at something, so I can contribute this, you're good at something different, so you can contribute this, you know, because humans are limited in their capacity, mm-hmm. what they can do and learn. Um, so yeah, it's more complementary, which then brought together Ray's yeah, the community. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's highlighting the voices that are present in your collective classroom. So um, it's not the teacher saying this is what everybody needs to learn. It's really opening the ears of everybody that's in that space to hear what other, what, what everybody within that space values and is concerned about or wants to learn about. Um, and so it's really bringing multiple perspectives to the table that we really don't have in schooling today. I think it, it, it has a lot of potential for creating a stronger collective than what our current system can do. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that often people who, um, study education and make arguments about how education or schooling should be um, don't see how it's in practice you know it's more the ideal of what we envisioned for this system and what it could contribute is kind of not really matched to what's going on um, you know in the actual schools i think it's really important to highlight that Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where you can bring in that idea of the importance of the local. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we may have a lot of state policy going on or a lot of control at the state level as far as standards and accountability or whatever. Um, But I think that the real power in learning happens when you become almost hyper local, especially in the beginning and allow seeds of ideas to grow locally and expand and move outward. Yeah, and being in, currently being in New York, near New York City, where it's mayoral control, you know, there's a lot of parents there that feel like they have absolutely no power, and they're probably right. Um, So, yeah, trying to create an environment in which um, people who are a part of that community, parents, businesses, whatever, can all kind of come together for the shared vision. I think the competency-based model, uh, you know, with like apprenticeship aspects to it or entrepreneurial aspects to it you know really would benefit a community absolutely absolutely i think that that also um speaks to the idea of you know what is what is education if it's preparing our uh, our children to be successful in life a lot of that can happen through public education you know you don't have to 
necessarily go to college to get the understanding of the skills and concepts and things that you need to be successful in life if your time is really well spent in the public schooling years, you know, so um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of wasted time in education today as we all have to learn the same amount of things in a fixed amount of time. Um, and I think that if, if we could shift that thinking a little bit, there's a lot of learning that could take place with apprenticeships and mm-hmm. um, really community engaged learning that could have kids leaving high school with really valuable skills um, Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't even necessarily need to further their education in college. Yeah, and a knowledge of what they're interested in and good at, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mm -hmm. which could help steer them. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, especially because you're sort of a guinea pig. And in a, a side note for the listeners that Jen and I had talked about a podcast for a while, um, and now I'm getting started without her, but hopefully we'll get back to our original idea. <laughs> yeah, it's the way to move forward, Sam. You go for it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen. I will be talking to you soon. All right. Very good. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks. You too.